Um, If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter, let's see, chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. You can look on your iPhone um, as long as you're not like in the first two rows because I'm really ADD and it messes me up. And as long as you're not texting anybody during my sermon, I'm fine with iPhones. But uh, if, you, if you actually have one of those little books with pages in it, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, my name's Matt Carter. It is good to be back with you. I, have, uh, I founded the church back in 2002. And uh, we, uh, I have been working on my doctorate, if you didn't know, for the past couple of years. Kind of been in and out. It's been a really busy season of my life. Um, I am all but about five or six pages away from my dissertation being done, um, which is really cool because I've been writing that for a really long time. And, uh, and then I've got to go, you don't have to clap. I just let you know, uh, I got a point I'm trying to make here. Um, but then I, I'm, uh, I got to go do my oral defenses in, uh, in, a, in a few months and then I graduate. And so I'll be done with that. But the point being is that I'm going to be back in the pulpit a lot more. So I'm excited to be back with you guys today. Um, we're beginning a series today called Far More, uh, Far More. It begins really in earnest next week. And, uh, and I want to spend a few minutes today before all the chaos of next week and all the college students come back and all the visitors come. I want to spend a few weeks just really with, with this Sunday, which is typically our family, talking about why we are doing this series, why we're doing this series. And uh, I moved my family to Austin back in uh, August of 2001. And I had this dream of starting a church here in Austin, Texas. Now, Austin at the time... Austin at the time was a church planting graveyard. It was a church planting graveyard. There was a statistic that came out through, I believe it was a Southern Baptist Convention, that 80 something percent, I don't remember the exact number, 80 something percent of all church plants, evangelical church plants that came to Austin during the early part of the new millennium was, uh, ended up failing. It was a church planting graveyard. And so I was told by more than a few people that there is no way There's no way on God's green earth that a redneck from East Texas who graduated from Texas A&M University would be able to come to downtown Austin and plant a church. And it break through that that 80-something percent failure rate. And so with all those fears, with all those fears and all those voices in, in my head, me and my family and a really small team moved here anyway. As you can imagine, I spent a lot of time in those first few months of the church on my knees, begging God to move. And there was a prayer, there was a prayer that I prayed in the early days of the church, and I prayed it a lot. And this is what I prayed. I asked God, I said, God, would you do something, would you do something through this church, and this again, there's nobody coming to church at this point. <clears throat> there's, you know, nobody knows about it. We're not meeting yet. And I prayed this prayer God, would you do something so significant through the Austin Stone Community Church that when we one day look back on what you did, there would be no way we could attribute it to anything other than the hand of the living God? I prayed that over and over and over again. God, would you do something so big, so significant that when that one day when we're old, when we look back on it, we'll be able to say there's no way that we can attribute to that to some worship leader or some preacher or some scheme or plan of man, but we'd be forced to say, God, you did all of that. And here's the crazy thing. We're 12 years in and God answered that prayer. We're 12 years in and God answered that prayer. Over the last 12 years, God has done a work through you through this church 
that is so much bigger than my wildest imagination that the only way we can attribute it to anything is to attribute it to the hand of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about during this series over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about how, and we're going to share with you some of the ways that God answered that prayer of a scared to death 27-year-old kid on his knees in a really grungy apartment back in the day. Now, here's the thing. One of the things about um, the millennial generation, which a lot of our church are millennials. There's some of, some of us old folks still out there, but there's a lot of millennials that were born in 1980 on. I didn't know they were born in 1980, but it's 1980 through, I don't remember, but that's the millennial generation. Well, one of the really awesome things about the millennial generation, one of the things that defines them, I knew this instinctively because I've, I've experienced it, but I read in an article the other day that millennials are just suspicious. They, they question everything. It's one of the things that's really good about the millennial generation. They question everything. They don't just take folks' word on stuff. You've got to prove it to them. But it's also one of the difficult things about the millennial generation. They question everything, right? It's one of the, one of the things that's difficult about their generation. And so because of that, because our church is largely made up of millennials, I have and our team has been scared to death to stand up and, and talk about some of the ways that God has answered that prayer. It's, it, we, we've been scared. We thought y'all would think we're bragging. If we kind of stood up and said, hey, here are some of the ways that God has blown our minds. Here's some of the specific ways that God has, has done some things that as we look back on it, we're like, we well, didn't do that. God must have done that. I'm gonna give you one. I'll just give you one example of, of, of one of the ways God answered that prayer. After 12 years, of, of, church, of, of having church here in Austin at the Austin Stone. The Austin Stone Community Church. And I just, I don't want you to clap or whatever. I just want you to let this rest on you, what I'm about to say. The Austin Stone Community Church is one of the largest missionary sending organizations on planet Earth. Okay? All right, now I'm not, I didn't say the largest sending church because I think you guys may be the largest missionary sending church in the United States of America. I'm pretty connected out there, we're pretty connected. I don't know of one that sends more missionaries or has sent more missionaries in the last five years than you guys have to the nations. And, I, and I've been scared to like stand up in the pulpit and say things like that, that you guys, the Lord through you over the last 10 years has raised up what I believe is the largest missionary sending church in the country. I've been scared to death to say that because I, th- I would think you guys would think we're bragging. But here's the thing I want you to hear very carefully. It's quite the opposite of that. God has done something so unbelievable in our midst that I know that we didn't do that. I know we didn't do that. If you would have come to me guys 12 years ago, in, in, that, in, in, that, in that one little office that we all shared where, where there were three of us, and, but we only had two computers, if you would have come to me in that moment and said, hey, in 12 years, Austin's gonna be the largest missionary sending church in the United States of America, I'd have laughed in your face. If you would have come to that first meeting where we're in an apartment with 15 college kids and said, God's gonna do that one thing, I would have never in my wildest dreams believed that God could have done that. And here's the thing I also want you to hear. We have done a great disservice to you by not sharing with you 
all the ways that God has moved mightily in our midst. It's unbiblical not to talk about the ways that our God has moved mightily in our midst. And so that's one of the things we're going to be doing in the course of this series is we're going to be talking about how God answered that prayer. God, would you do something that as we look back on it, we cannot attribute it to us. We've got a little booklet, a little guidebook, we're calling it, that people are going to be giving you on the way out. I want you to grab one of them. I want you to check it out. Because one of the things it does in the beginning of the book is it kind of just throws some stuff out there about some of the ways that God has answered that prayer. Um, just some small stuff. It's just one little slice of the pie. It's not even all of it. But man, when I was reading it, <coughs> it blew my mind. I planted the church. I didn't know all this stuff. It ministered to me. Grab one on the way out. I think it'll minister to you. So that's kind of the first purpose of the series is to celebrate what God has done in and through us. But here's the other purpose of the series. And that's for us to, uh, as a church, for you as an individual and for us as a church to come before the Lord and to say to him, God, you have answered our prayer once. Lord, would you answer it again? Lord, you were faithful to answer that prayer in year one through 12. Lord, would you be faithful to answer the prayer again in years 12 through 24. That's what this series really is all about, is asking God, begging God, you, me, a church, as a church, God, would you do far more in the next season of our life than you have done in the first season of our life until it's time for us to pass the torch on to the next generation? It's a bold thing to ask, but it's a very biblical thing to ask, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. <clears throat> Verse 20 is kind of our theme verse for the whole series. And so I want you to, hopefully by the end of it, I want you to have it memorized. Because it's just as true for you as it is for anybody else that's a Christian here on earth today. Ephesians 3.20, Paul says, Now to him, now to him, who is able, that's God. Now to him, who is able to do What is God able to do? He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. God's able to do something far more abundantly. What is is God able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. That's what this series is about. That's what we're gonna be talking about for the next several weeks is celebrating that God had, God, not us, God has done far more through us than we could ask for or even imagined and we are begging God to continue to do far more through us in the days and the years to come. Now, I want to spend the rest of my time today sharing with you why we feel like this is a critical moment in the life of our church to be talking and asking God to do far more than what he's already done. Why now are we saying, okay, God, you've been faithful. Would you continue to be faithful? And here's the reason. Because typically and historically, in years 12 through 15 in the lifespan of a church, which is where we're at, Historically speaking, that is a lot of times when churches that have been powerfully used by God within their first 12, 15 years begin to plateau. And churches historically that God has used powerfully 12 to 15 years 
if they get, begin to plateau, if God doesn't do a movement within the church, then they typically begin to decline and then eventually become a shell of what they once were. Now, here's why that happens. Because churches, predominantly, when they begin, are passionate about Jesus. Churches, when they start, predominantly are passionate about the lost. When, when a group of people come together and they start a church, predominantly they are, they're passionate about being a part of the, of the mission of God, but then something crazy happens. God starts answering prayers. God starts moving. Lost people start getting saved. People start getting discipled. Missionaries start getting sent from the church. All this amazing stuff begins to happen. They see the culture of the city begin to change. God uses them. But then, usually, we can look back through church history, and we usually see all these churches that, that God has used mightily through the years, and we, and we look at them about years 12, 15, somewhere around 20. What happens is, is that the church begins to kind of rest and get comfortable with God's past victories in their lives. They begin to look backwards in thankfulness as they should, but they begin to rest on God's past victories in their lives. <clears throat> they stop looking forward to, to the victories in the future and little by little, they lose a little bit of passion for Jesus. They lose a little bit of passion for the lost. They get really comfortable. They get really complacent and eventually apathy sets in and then they plateau. And if God doesn't move, they decline. And again, the church becomes a shell of what it once was. I bet most of you that have spent time in church in your life could probably tell a story like that about a church that you know. That, that at some point in time, the people of the church were on fire and God was moving and it was an amazing church, but somewhere along the way, it just kind of stopped. And now looking back on it, the church is a shell of what it once was. I'm convinced that that is one of Satan's greatest tools in combating the church of Jesus Christ. I think it's one of his greatest tools. I believe the greatest tool in, that Satan has in his tool belt to combat the church of Jesus, to take out the church of Jesus' is division. That's why used Jesus all the time on the last night of his life, John chapter 17 was praying, Lord, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Jesus knew that about Satan and he knew that about us. Satan, one of his greatest tricks is, is to make us forget that he is the enemy. And he, and he starts getting us to think that each other are the enemy. It's one of his greatest tricks in, in his tool belt. If he can get the pastor fighting with the elders, if he can get the choir director fighting with the choir, if he can get somebody in a missional community fighting with somebody else in a missional community, if he can get us looking at each other and thinking we're the enemy, division comes in there and then churches become ineffective for the kingdom. So that's his number one trick. But his number two trick, I believe, with all my heart, it's sneaky, but it's very effective, is he is able to take away the momentum of a church that is powerfully being used by God by getting them into this kind of slow, steady decline into complacency. And that's really kind of the point that Jesus makes in the parable of the sower. And Jesus is talking about individuals in the parable of the sower, but I think it can be applied to the church because the church is made up of individuals. But Jesus tells four stories in the parable of the sower about how we're going to respond to the word of God when we hear it. Jesus said that you're going to respond in one of four ways when you hear the word of God in your life. And the first thing, and the first way he says is this. He says, the word of God, you're going to hear it. And there's going to be some people that when they hear the word of God, Satan immediately comes and he snatches away the word of God from their lives. And so it never bears fruit in the first place. It never grows in the first place. It's dead before it ever gets started. 
And I was thinking about how that I think Satan attacked us as a church that way in the beginning of our church. In the infancy of the Austin Stone, when this thing was just in the infancy stages, I think Satan in several ways, several, and I won't tell you all of them, but came and, and tried to snatch this thing before it ever got started. I mean, one of the first things that happened to me when I ever came to Austin, Texas, the first time I came to Austin, I was a sophomore in college. First time I'd ever been to the evil, dark Austin, Texas as an Aggie. I was a little bald sophomore in the core. I got out of my car, true story, and somebody shot at me with a gun. Now they missed, all right, but I got shot at. And then me and my buddies, my core buddies were here for a bachelor party. One of my buddies was getting married. And so there was like 20 little bald core guys walking down 6th Street. It was brilliant. And, and, we, and, and, and like we almost got in a street fight with some fraternity. I think it was like KA or some, I don't remember. It Don't beat me up, KA guys. But anyway, we almost got in a fight with y'all. And then on the way back from almost getting a fight after getting shot at, a homeless guy jumped out of a building and punched one of my buddies in the mouth and knocked him out. And, and so everything I'd ever heard growing up as a good Aggie about Austin was true. And so when the Lord started leading us to Austin, I was like, nope, 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 nope. Now, I, now listen, I, now I love Austin. I mean, I'm, I'm in. Austin, Texas is the greatest city on planet Earth, hands down. But here's the thing. You have no idea how close this church came to being the Houston Stone Community Church. <laughs> Satan came in, man, from the very beginning, and he tried to pluck this thing out before it ever got started. Now, Jesus tells another story. He tells the story of the person that hears the word of God and that it actually grows. It actually grows as they receive it with gladness. But then Satan has another trick. He sends persecution into their life. Okay, he tries to snatch it up, doesn't work. They start growing. <clears throat> and so he sends persecution in their life. And through the persecution, Jesus in, in the original parable talked about how the sun came and scorched it. So the persecution comes to their life and the persecution gets too tough and they back away. That was another way, I, I believe with all my heart, Satan tried to attack our church. In the early days of the church, when we moved to Austin and we planted a stake in the ground and we said, we're gonna move into downtown Austin, Texas and we're gonna preach the word of God and we're gonna exalt Jesus Christ. Then Satan came after us in a way that I had never experienced in my entire life. Within a couple of years of the planning of the church, my mom died, Kevin Peck's mom died, Holly and Suh's mom died. I got cancer in a family where there's absolutely zero family history of cancer. One of our founding pastor's wives, this man is one of the godliest men I've ever known in my life. His wife denied the faith and he had to leave the ministry because of her. And that was just within a couple of years. And that's just a couple of stories out of about a hundred. Satan absolutely tried to bring persecution into our lives to mess this whole thing up, but God, through his grace, endured us through that, and we're still here. But then there's another story, and it's an interesting one, and I think it probably hits a lot closer to a lot of us, maybe more than we would admit. Jesus tells the story in the parable of the sower, the person who hears the word of God, it grows up, Satan tries to snatch it away, can't do it, keeps growing, persecution comes, that doesn't work, keeps growing, but then Jesus said something interesting happens in this person's life. He said that, that, that Satan takes them out, but it's not through attack. It's not through persecution. I want you to watch carefully. Don't turn there. Watch carefully what Jesus says takes out this individual in Luke chapter eight, verse 14. Jesus says it here. <clears throat> it says, and as for what fell among the thorns, that's this third person. They, these are the ones who hear, that's the word of God. But as they go on their way, they are choked. 
They're choked. That's an interesting word. It's, it means a, a slow death, a slow decline. They are choked. What are they choked by? Choked by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this life. And they prove unfruitful. What, what Jesus is saying here is that this group of people, they don't get taken out because of an attack. This group of people isn't rendered ineffective by Satan because of some persecution. What Jesus is saying here is that Satan wins this particular battle in these particular people's lives, not because he attacks them, because he lulls them to sleep in their success and in their comfort and in their complacency. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm telling you, church, I'm telling you, church, that Satan, if he cannot defeat you through an attack, he will try to defeat you by lulling you to sleep by the pleasures of this life and rendering you ineffective for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what he did with King David. That's exactly what he did with King David. Y'all remember the story, the the thing that happened in David's life that he was never the same after that? Y'all remember? It's Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, here's what happened. King David, later in his life, goes out on the roof one, one day. He sees a naked woman bathing. He, he asks some people about her, finds out she's married. He doesn't care, brings her up. He sleeps with her. And that moment right there, that moment right there, after he does this one sin, he commits this one act, his life was absolutely never the same after that. that his life was never the same after that one sin. Now, he repented. He repented, and we're going to talk about his repentance next week. But he repented, but here's the thing. His life was never the same. Because really, really, the the rippling effects of that one failure, that one sin, um, would would be, uh, some of the effects would be four of his children would die. Four of his children would die. Some of the rippling effects of this one sin would be ultimately this would, would play a role in the division of God's kingdom. The, Israel, the Israelites would be divided. Uh, some of the rippling effects of that would be David's life was never the same. And I want you to watch the scheme of Satan and how Satan accomplished this in David's life. Watch this in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. In 2 Samuel 11.1. 1, it says, in the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, watch this last part, it says, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now that's a telling verse. The scripture says that it's in the springtime, and this is the time when kings go out to battle. But where was David? David wasn't where he was supposed to be. David wasn't with his army leading the fight. David wasn't with his army in the battle. David, it said, in the times when king goes out to battle, he sent Joab. They took care of business, and David hung back in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. I saw something this week in the scripture I've never seen before in my life. I've preached this probably 10 times. I've heard it preached 10 times. I've never seen what it says in verse two, but it's so telling about how the enemy was able to sneak into the life of David and eventually take him out. Watch what it says in verse two. Scripture says, it happened. Okay, he's saying all this happened, the Bathsheba thing. It happened late one afternoon. 
late one afternoon. I kind of had it in my brain that the whole Bathsheba David thing happened like late at night, in the middle of the night. David was creeping, you know what I'm talking about? Kind of creeping around, checking things out. No. No, it says it happened late one afternoon. Now watch the next verse. This blew me away, or the next part of the verse there. It says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. When David arose from his couch. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And you know the rest of the story. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. David did not get taken out in the shepherding fields when he was a little boy fighting a lion and a bear. David did not get taken out When he was a teenager on a battlefield having to fight single-handedly against a nine-foot-tall Philistine giant, David did not get taken out as a young man by his uh, best friend's dad who betrayed him and tried to kill him over and over and over again. David got taken out on the couch. Late one afternoon, Bored out of his mind, resting on God's past victories in his life. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're in a place in our church. I don't think Satan's going to take us out through an attack. I don't think Satan's going to take us out through persecution. I really don't. He tried it last year. It didn't work killed one of our missionaries God's sovereignty killed one of our missionaries one of my best friends one of our pastors and all it did was make me mad all it did was was draw us nearer to God as a church all it did was see more people come to Christ all it did was have more people raise their hand and somebody tell me this Saturday night all it did was have people raise their hand and say you know what if Ronnie Smith can leave everything in America and go to a place and give his life for Jesus then I'm willing to do it too I don't think Satan's going to take us out through that but here's the thing I think we're absolutely in danger of is Satan rendering us ineffective Because we start resting on our past victories in the Lord. And so we start laying up on the couch and getting comfortable with what God has done in the past. You see, church, a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians, they start out with fire in their eyes and passion in their hearts for Jesus, but somewhere along the way, their fire and their passion gets choked out of their life because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this life. And so in the course of this series, in the course of this series, here's what we're gonna do. We're asking you that if you're on the couch, and you know if you're on the couch spiritually, In regards to the mission of God, you know if you're on the couch. You know you are. You don't have to even think about it. If you're on the couch, we're going to be asking, get off the couch. Get off the couch now. If you're off the couch and you're in the fight like David should have been, if you're off the couch and in the fight, we're going to challenge you to stay off the couch and take another step towards the mission of God and what he has you for, has called you to. 
And throughout the course of this series, you're going to hear me say this a lot. We're going to ask you to do two things. We're going to ask you to, and and hear this, we're going to ask you to take one step in two areas of your life. We're going to ask you to take one step in two areas of your life. I want everybody in in the sound of my voice throughout the course of the series to take one step in their involvement. One step in their involvement in the mission of God through the venue that Jesus Christ created to accomplish the mission of God, and that is the church. And that's what we're asking you to do. We want you to take one step wherever you are, whether you're a person that just walked in the door or you've been coming here 12 years and you've been walking with God for 50, we want you to take one step in your involvement in the mission of God through the venue that Jesus thought up and dreamed up to accomplish that mission, and that is the church. And then I'm gonna unashamedly ask you to do a second thing. I'm unashamedly gonna ask you to take one step in your investment, in your investment, the investment of your time, the investment of your finances. I'm gonna ask that unashamedly in light of all that he's done and all that I think he's gonna do. Investment in your prayer. We're gonna talk about that in two weeks. We need to take steps in our investment and our prayer. We need to take steps in our investment of our ownership of God's church and his mission. We're gonna ask you to take those steps so that we can be at least in a posture to say, God, will you do far more in the years to come than what you've already done? Will you do far more than we can ask or think according to the power that you said is at work in us? I started this series talking about millennials and said that they're a generation that questions everything. Well, everybody here in the room, I got a question for you. And it's a question that I think you ought to be asking. And the question is this, will my investment be worth it? I'm on the couch, if I get off the couch and I get in the fight, if I get on mission, if I start living for the Lord, if I start sacrificing for Jesus, will it be worth it? Will, will, Will my investment, will my involvement be worth it? If I spend my life on the front lines of the fight, will it be worth it? And I will end this sermon with the words of Paul that we ended last week's sermon with. And I want you to just listen to it. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. In answering the question, will my involvement, will my investment be worth it? Paul says this. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Paul said, if Jesus didn't come out of the ground, then I'm preaching in vain right now. If Jesus didn't come out of the ground, then your faith, it is in vain right now. He says, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that, that, that Christ raised from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, watch what he says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But watch what he says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus Christ did not come out of the ground, this is the dumbest series in the history of the world. 
If Jesus Christ did not come out of the ground, then me saying, give your life, give your finances, pray, give your gifts, give your efforts, give your ownership. If Jesus did not come out of the ground, then that's the dumbest thing I could ever say. And I am a man that is most to be pitied. And in verse 20, watch what he says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. In verse 58, he says, therefore, here's the result of Jesus being raised from the dead. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. I want you to do two things with our head bowed and our eyes closed today. I want you to pray for yourself. Take just a minute. For those of you that maybe started your life on fire for Jesus, passion for the lost in your heart, You used to see God do great things and, and, and somewhere along the way that complacency's kind of come into the picture. Just ask him to do a work in your heart today and through this series. Just ask that right now. I pray for our church. Tell the Lord that you believe that he is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the power at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Pray for our church that God would do something so big (laughs) so significant in the days to come that when we look back on it, we can attribute to no man, no pastor, no elder, no worship leader, but only the hand of the living God. 